All right, let's begin with prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for the opportunity to be shepherded by you through your word. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which your father gave to you so that you could show us the things which must shortly take place. And so we're asking that you would be present with us to, in fact, be our rabbi tonight, our teacher. We ask this of you, Good Shepherd Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, we are in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, <clears throat> which is a... I just love the way the book of Revelation falls out. Chapter 13, which we concluded with last week, is basically the Antichrist's agenda. This is his plan for taking control and mastery of this earth. And he, is, he demands worship. And there you have the false trinity of the dragon, the replacement for God the Father. You've got the beast, the Antichrist, which means Christ, literally means, and that's the Apostle John, same as the author of this book of Revelation. Antichrist means Christ's replacement in the Greek language. He, he claims to be the Messiah. He doesn't jump out and say, I hate Jesus of Nazareth, although he does. He claims to be the Messiah. And so that's the replacement. The dragon is the replacement for God the Father. The beast or the Antichrist is the replacement for God the Son. And you've got in chapter 13 the false prophet who is the replacement for God the Holy Spirit. And he erects an idol this idol, and he does miracle stuff. He does things to incite, and Satan's power does things to incite people to worship the beast. And if you don't, by the way, you get executed. And you've got the last part of chapter 13, you've got this thing called the mark of the beast, the number 666, but it is a something that will be put on someone's forehead or on their hand, and you cannot buy or sell without being able to show that at the marketplace. And so it, that's designed to force people to submit to the program so that you can eat and so forth. So, but in chapter 14, we find Jesus answering program. You've got chapter 13, the Antichrist format and program. Chapter 14, Jesus reply to that. And it is very clear, uh, and it actually uh, captures what will fall out for in the rest of the three and a half years. Let me just begin by reading chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, notice a voice from heaven, like a voice, the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So what we have here, I want you to notice something. This is the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. There's only one possible exception to this. Mount Zion is always earthly Jerusalem. Mount Zion, actually on the side of Mount Zion, is where the temple was built. David had gathered all the materials and Solomon, his son, uh, went ahead and built the temple on the side of Mount Zion, not the summit. The Jews never would have built the, town, the temple on the summit because that's where the pagans worship is on the hilltops and the mountaintops. And so they deliberately built the temple off of this, the summit 
of Mount Zion, which was there in part of the city of Jerusalem. And the only lone exception, possibly, that Mount Zion means heaven is found in the book of Hebrews. Where it says that Mount Zion is above Mount Sinai. But it's interesting. Let me give you a little. This is, I was very surprised when I discovered this. If you look at a map with the longitude lines and latitude lines, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion are on exactly, exactly, exactly the same longitude line. And so when it says Mount Zion is above Mount Sinai, it may be simply talking about the geography. They are in exactly the same longitude line. Isn't that interesting? Well, Jesus is standing on Mount Zion, which I'm suggesting to you this is earthly Jerusalem. And who is he surrounded by? He's surrounded by the 144,000. These men who are described in chapter 7. You will remember when we were in chapter 7, I pointed out, excuse me, chapter 6. No, chapter 7. It is chapter 7. Chapters 6 and 7 go together. Uh, chapter breaks are not divine, divinely inspired. <laughs> Four things happen on day one of the tribulation. Number one, that is the day that Israel signs a mutual security pact with the beast. And, they, and that's why he is the white horse rider. The first seal is the white horse rider because they love this guy. He has just signed a mutual security pact with them. Why? Because the enemy of my enemy is my friend and they have this guy who is the leader of a, a restored Roman Empire, a European Union, who has signed this mutual security pact. So that happens. The second thing that, another thing that happens that is visible to everyone is Moses and Elijah show up in the temple. And they're there for the next three and a half years calling plagues down on Israel and the surrounding nations in order to drive them to repentance. Third thing that happens is this chapter 7 is that the angels, there are four angels that stop the four winds of the earth so that the storms, the, the rainstorms, the rain clouds stay over the seas because the, we get storms moving over the land on the jet stream winds. Well, if you stop the jet stream winds, you stop the rain. And it says later in chapter 11, in the time of the three and a half years of the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah ministry, there is no rain on the earth. And those angels have stopped the winds. That's why there's no rain on the earth. And of course, those two witnesses called for it. That was one of the plagues they called down. And the fourth thing that happens is the 144,000 are marked on their foreheads. This is chapter 7. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It lists 12 tribes. and says 12,000 from Judah, Reuben, and so on. It goes down through the list. Well, here you've got the 144,000. Where are they now? They're standing on Mount Zion surrounding Jesus. On Mount Zion. In earthly Jerusalem. What does that tell us? And my suggestion is this, and I've, I've made this point, I'm, I want to be clear about my opinion versus the thus saith the Lord. My opinion is the effect of the marking on their foreheads is that these 144,000, they go out throughout the earth for the next seven years preaching the gospel and they cannot be stopped. They are like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can throw them in a fiery furnace, it won't stop them. <laughs> They walk out the other side. Why do I say that? Because they're here on Mount Zion with Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to the earth until when? His second coming at the end of the seven years. So here he is in earthly Jerusalem surrounded by the 144,000. Now, it is possible that they were raised from the dead. There's no doubt about that. And we're going to see in chapter 19 that in fact... There will be a, a resurrection of all of the saints of every age. And so it certainly is possible they were raised. But what I'm suggesting to you is this. They're standing there on Mount Zion because here they are at the end of the seven years and they haven't been killable. They haven't been stoppable. They've been like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going through the fiery furnace. They've been like Daniel going through the den of lions coming out the other side. 
And, they're stand, and so let's say you are, you are a persecuted saint in the, in the tribulation era. What does this tell you? Here's the team victory picture <laughs> after the game. And the game hasn't even been finished. And yet here is being shown, oh, Jesus is saying, remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Jesus is showing us the team victory picture. Now, Larry Gusick and I, and we were just talking about football, and we we're talking about the who won today and all this stuff. And what if the coach could show a picture to his team before the game is even completed? We're at halftime, we're being crushed. But here, guys, here's a picture being, that's being taken 90 minutes from now, and it's you guys surrounding me, and we're holding the trophy. <laughs> that would be powerful assurance. Are we going to win? Oh, yeah. Let me show you the team victory picture. We haven't even played the game. Yeah, but that's how certain it is that we, you, we, you're on the winning side. That's how certain it is. And again, I've made this statement that my favorite simple phrase in the entire Bible is out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 5. This is the God who governs amongst the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And here's my favorite phrase, whose hand cannot be restrained. You can't even slow him down. <laughs> so here is Jesus standing on Mount Zion, earthly Jerusalem, surrounded by the 144,000. And they are hearing a hymn, a victory song from heaven. From heaven. Now we've seen, for example, Revelation 4.1. John the Apostle standing on the earth. And he hears a voice from heaven that says, come up here. And he comes up there. And we saw in chapter 11, Moses and Elijah, they've just been raised up. They've been three and a half days on the, on the street, dead. They stand up alive. And there's a voice from heaven that says, come up here. And everyone hears the voice and witnesses them going up. Well, this is similar to that. They're standing in, in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, but they're hearing a song from heaven and it is their victory song. Now, we've got two men here that are military veterans. Does your regiment or the military outfit, regiments have their own songs. And when veterans get together, they will often, there will be a regimental song that is specific to them. It's, 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 it's part of their heritage as having served in that regiment or that company or whatever. And so these men are hearing a song that is their song. It is their song. We can't even imagine the kind of persecution and torture they endured. And here they are standing surrounding the Lamb, surrounding their shepherd, their Savior in Jerusalem for the victory picture and they're hearing this song from heaven. I heard a voice from heaven like a voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four, now they're singing it before the throne of God in heaven, but it's being heard in Jerusalem. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. Well, if they were women and it was the role reverse, they'd be saying the same thing. These are women who weren't defiled with men, <laughs> for they were virgins. So it's not a st statement that's anti-woman. It's a statement about their purity. These are the ones who are not defiled with women. They maintain their vow of chastity. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men. They're not going to receive the, what will come upon the men who reject Christ. They are redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. They are the most treasured of all of God's followers to God. And in their mouth is found no deceit. 
for they are without fault before the throne of God. Yes? Mm hmm. Yes. Yes. The choir is, the, is singing before the throne of God in heaven and they're hearing the heavenly choir as they're standing surrounding Jesus. They're hearing this song from heaven in the same way that John the Apostle heard the voice of God from heaven when he said, come up here in the same way that Moses and Elijah heard the voice. And so did the people surrounding them heard the voice from heaven. So they are in earthly Jerusalem hearing the voice from heaven, this heavenly choir uh, I heard the voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists, plural, playing their harps. They sang, the they, probably the harpists. No. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who redeemed from the earth. So I would say the nearest antecedent to the they is the harpists. So they're hearing the 144,000 is hearing this song coming down from this heavenly choir, and it's their song. And it's their song of victory. It Possibly, yeah, the harpists and so forth. and Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, God has gifted them in that way, right. Well, now we have three angels with actually four messages. <coughs> And what we're going to see is the third angel is actually going to have two messages. Verse 6, Then I saw <clears throat> another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Now, remember, in the, in the book of Revelation, the, the expression, those who dwell on the earth, is a uniformly negative statement. Those who dwell on the earth are those who are in rebellion against God. But who is it that needs the gospel? Those who are in rebellion against God. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come. Let me stop for a moment here. In chapter 11. When the two witnesses. Who have been laying on the street for three and a half days. Are suddenly stand up on their feet. And this voice comes from heaven saying come up here. And they are taken up into heaven. And there is a mighty earthquake. Let me read this to you. This is uh, chapter 11. Verse 12, and they heard, meaning the inhabitants of Jerusalem, heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they, excuse me, Moses and Elijah heard the voice and they ascended into heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. They were afraid of what? Well, they just saw these two witnesses taken up into heaven. They just saw this judgment fell. They just saw all these people get... I think we can rightly understand they were afraid of God. It's a good thing to be afraid of God. <laughs> and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's the gospel formula of chapter 14. This just been explained to us. The angel... Explain is crying out the everlasting gospel. Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And we're going to see in chapter 15. This is the. 
witness, we're going to see, this is the martyrs out of the great tribulation who are standing before, on the, before the throne of God in heaven. And this is their worship. Verse 3, this is 15.3. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Same formula. Fear God, give Him glory. Fear God, give Him glory. Fear God, give Him glory. Who is so insane that they wouldn't do this? And that is the everlasting gospel. Getting God right and then walking in the reality of that and giving God authentic glory and worship. And so here we are again in 14.6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Nobody is disqualified because of their ethnicity. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. So fear Him, give Him glory. He's about to... It's time to fish or cut bait. <laughs> Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. He is the divine creator. You'll remember back in chapter 4, the close of chapter 4, where John is witnessing the worship of of the angels and the 24 elders in the throne room of God in the very close of chapter 4 the point is made you are worthy O Lord to receive glory and honor why for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created the creator has the right complete ownership rights to what he created especially the creator of all things who spoke things out of nothing into reality he has the right of a creator nobody can say to the creator what are you doing with your creation no it's his creation that he spoke into existence Fear God and give Him glory for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And so you can say to this beast, this Antichrist, you can say to the uh, false prophet that is demanding the people worship Him, excuse me, is the fellow you're asking us to worship, did he create? <clears throat> Moving right along. Of course he didn't create. He's a created being. Fear God and give Him glory for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. And another angel followed saying, and this is the first mention of Babylon, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So suddenly, all of it, wait a minute, we, we, where did this come from? There hasn't been any mention at all up to this point of this Babylon structure or power. And suddenly here the second angel is declaring the destruction of Babylon. Well, we're going to get much detail on that in chapters 17 and eight, 17, 18 and the early part of chapter 19. So we won't go into it, but uh, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. And what we're going to see is that Babylon is actually a, a word or concept that captures up the whole the concept of the elites in every culture and civilization throughout history since the flood that has used and abused the peasants and the final thing we will see about Babylon that the trading of Babylon they traded in the bodies and souls of men they used people as if they were simply goods. 
and God is going to finish them off. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Every nation, every culture, every civilization drank into that and paid a huge price. Verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself, it, once you take that mark, it's over. It's over. And receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, which is an old word for sulfur. You shall be tormented with fire and sulfur brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torments ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and receives the mark of his name. Now, there's going to be 144,000 evangelists running around the planet warning people and telling them you need to Fear God, and you need to worship Him. You need to give Him glory, and you need to turn away from. Better to die, and as we will see in chapter 15, better to die resisting the beast and the, and the false prophet than to, allow, than to accept their intimidation to follow Him and worship. Verse 12 and here is it's the third angel, but it's the second proclamation from the third angel. Here is the patience or endurance of the saints. What does it look like in this environment of incredible upheaval, incredible persecution where people are being killed day after day after day after day relentlessly rather than submitting to the beast? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, what is, what is the outcome of their endurance? What is the outcome of their patience? What is the outcome of their willing acceptance of execution of death rather than dishonoring Jesus look like? I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, right, blessed are the dead Blessed are the dead. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And their works follow. So when they step into the presence of God, they don't come with nothing. They come with the record of their loyalty to Jesus with them. And as we see in, we'll see in chapter 19, they will be seated down at the marriage supper of the Lamb wearing white robes of their righteousness. Jenny? This is the great tribulation. Yes. They, yes. Yes, well, or in the either one, I would dare say, because they are martyrs, but especially in the Great Tribulation, because that's when the real persecution starts, when the Antichrist will start demanding worship, as he had never before. Well, we have martyrs being killed right now, and it's the same spirit of what will be taking place then, but there, this is very specific to the Tribulation, especially, as Ginny suggested, the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years, that era, there's going to be special accolades in heaven for those martyrs. Because it's going to be, the, I mean, it's going to be probably a very wicked form of death that they will have to endure. And they're going to be described again in chapter 15. But again, here is verse 12. 
Here is the patience or endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. It's blessed. You're blessed. You're martyred. And it's a blessing. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked... And John sees another, here's another vision. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. I am seeing Jesus, God the Son, the Son of Man, which is the favorite Jewish term for Messiah, seated on a white cloud. Having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle and the earth is reaped. And I'm suggesting to you, this is a reaping of the wheat into the barn. This is actually a, uh, the, a, the martyrs that are being, whose lives are being taken and the other, there will be survivors, by the way. <laughs> when Jesus comes, there will be people there already to greet him who are loyal believers and followers of him. But he's reaping them, those who turn away from the Antichrist and his message and glorify God and give and uh, fear God and give glory to him. They are the ones being reaped by the Son of Man seated on the cloud. He's reaping them into his barn. What? No, it means that he is there being brought into his kingdom in an authentic way. Whether they are once people who will ultimately be martyred or not, these are people being reaped in the same way that when you came to faith in Christ, Jesus was there reaping you. <laughs> he was there harvesting you into his barn. No, it's a figure, it's a figure of speech for the, event, the harvest of the evangelism, probably principally carried out by the 144,000. So these are being reaped. This is a, 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 a reaping of the redeemed. And that's in stark contrast to the next paragraph, which is another harvest unto judgment. So you've got the harvest by Jesus himself of the redeemed in the tribulation and especially the great tribulation era into his storehouse, into his barn. And then you've got another harvest beginning in verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altars. These are two separate angels. One of them has a sharp sickle. And he comes out of the temple. And then another angel come out, comes out from the altar, which is in the temple, who had power over fire. And so that's his job. He's there at the altar of fire, uh, the altar of burnt incense in the heavenly temple. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the winepress, great winepress of the wrath of God. Ouch. You don't want to be part of that harvest. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. Well, what in the book of in the Bible, the city, if there's no other identification, it's Jerusalem. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for one thousand six hundred furlongs. What's this, how far is that? We don't we don't typically use furlongs to measure. Well, in my, the margin of my Bible, it says that 1,600 furlongs, that's 184 miles. 
92 miles in every direction around Jerusalem. As we're gonna, and when we get into chapter uh, 16, we're going to see the armies of all the nations that have submitted themselves to the beast. They're going to gather around Jerusalem to annihilate, to finally finish off the Jews. They're gathered, and they fill. It's if you draw a straight line from Kerrville to Georgetown, it's 92 miles. So imagine Kerrville surrounded as the center of a circle that big, filled with the armies of all those nations. And what happens? As we're going to see, as we've, uh, we've cross-referenced already earlier to uh, Zechariah 14, Jesus will come out, he will speak, and the blood will fly. And instantly it will be up to the level of the horse's bridles that fast. Folks, you don't want to be on the wrong side. So you've got the picture of the harvest into God's barn that Jesus carries out. This is... The other harvest that you don't want to be part of. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs, the 92 miles in every direction around Jerusalem. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, what verse are you in? So he, he was set on the... Okay. Okay, close to 15. Well, that's because when you harvest the grain of wheat, the, the plant, it, when the wheat is truly ripe and ready to be harvested, the plant has withered. Because all of the energy of the plant has gone into the grain. And so, that's how, whereas with the grapes, it doesn't look that way. I mean, grapes... I mean, the grapevines look really healthy and strong as at, even at the point of harvest. Uh, yes, it does. Yeah. Okay, again, verse 20. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs, 92 miles in every direction surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Chapter 15, which is just eight verses. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Now we've already in chapter, chapters, <coughs> chapter 6, and uh, then in the, we had the six of the seven seals, and then the seventh seal is open in chapter Eight, chapter 8, verse 1. So you've got the seven seal judgments, and they actually cover the entire seven years. They're, they're brought into effect through the entire seven years. But in the first half of the tribulation, uh, you had the uh, trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet is what actually initiates the great tribulation. And then here in the last half, really towards the close, rapidly as I read it, very rapidly, one after another after another, just before, probably within a few weeks or short months before the second coming of Christ, you have the bowl judgments. And this is where, and it's interesting, that Jesus opens the seals, but then the trumpets are blown by seven angels standing before the throne of God, which is priestly, and they're blowing the trumpets, and then we're going to have seven priestly angels pouring out these bowls now one of the things to remember in 
the law of Moses, one of the ways in which people worshipped was that they would bring, uh, especially their, uh, their wine harvest, they would bring the first fruits of their wine harvest, they would bring it to Jerusalem, they would give it to the priest, and they would put it in a bowl, and then they would, go, they would pour it out on the ground before the throne of God, before the altar. And that was an act of worship to God. I'm giving God, I'm giving you the first fruits of my, my grape harvest, my wine harvest. And that was given to God. Well, this is setting us up for the bowl judgments. These are actually, this is, these judgments are going to be, they're going to be pouring out, emptying these bowls, but it's going to be judgments being poured out on the earth. 15.1, then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous, seven angels having the last, having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. This is going to be the finishing episode that will bring us into Jesus' kingdom. And I saw something like a sea of glass. John is in heaven, he's he's in the throne room of God. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they went through fire. What did it say? That they would be back in uh, 1413. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And here we are now seeing them on the sea of glass before the throne of God. But that, what is characterizing that sea of glass? Fire. Why? Because they walked through fire. They've been purified by their endurance, by their loyalty to Jesus. Again, verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast. So these are specifically martyrs out of the great tribulation over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having harps of God and their, uh, their witness, their ability to bring worship and glory to God is enhanced by the fact that they have the harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And now and then is recited the song of the Lamb. Well, what is the song of Moses? Well, there's two possibilities here. One is a passage we spent quite a bit of time on, Deuteronomy 32. That's called the song of Moses. But there's another possibility, and this is the one I lean towards, And that's Exodus chapter 15, which is also called a song. It's uh, 15.1. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke. What happened in chapter 14? They just turned around. They made it through the walls of water at the Red Sea. And they turned around and they watched Pharaoh's army coming after them. And they watched as the walls of the water of the Red Sea collapsed on Pharaoh's army and drowned Pharaoh and his army. I'm sorry, movie, The Exodus, <laughs> where it shows Yul Brynner going back by himself. No, Yul Brynner didn't get to go back. <laughs> Pharaoh, didn't, Pharaoh didn't survive. No one survived. No one survived. They, and the Jewish people turned around and watched these same walls of water that were held back for them collapse on the Egyptian army. And chapter 15 of Exodus, verses 1 through 18, is the song that was sung in worship to God. Now, I'm not going to read all of these verses, but let me point you to the very center verse of the hymn. And it reads this way. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Now, this is what I would call in the book of Revelation the worship wars. Because way back in chapter 13, 
we saw the false prophet leading in the worship of the beast. And how is that expressed? Who is like the beast? Who is like the beast? It's asked, the worship is asked in, as a rhetorical question. Who is like the beast? And then you've got here in chapter 15 of Revelation, who is like you, as we're going to see, who is like you, O Lord? Well, what was, this, what was the center of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15? Who is like you, O Lord? That rhetorical question, that is the, uh, the height of worship. There's only one answer. Well, there's only one authentic answer to that rhetorical question. Who is like our Lord, the Creator? No one. That's the center of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. That's the wicked worship of the beast in chapter 13. Who is like the beast? And now we find it here in chapter 15 of Revelation. We've got... They sang the song of Moses, but listen to the song of the Lamb. This is verses 3 and 4. They sang the song of Moses first, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They got a two-hit thing going on here. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not Fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. Again, this is worship expressed as a rhetorical question. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? And that, of course, is, that's the message of the gospel in the book of Revelation. That first angel, what's his proclamation to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people? Fear God and give him glory. Who will not fear you and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. The beast isn't holy. The dragon isn't holy. The false prophet isn't holy. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. And indeed they shall. For your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked. And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in bright linen. This is priestly regalia right out of the, the book of the law of Moses. Clothed in pure, pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. The priests of ancient Israel actually had gold thread woven into their regalia around their chests. Well, these angels have solid gold bands, apparently, <laughs> around their chests. So there's, clear, there's a clear statement. These angels are be acting as priests of God. Uh, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever in contrast to the beast. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard verse 16.1 and we will conclude with this. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Yes. Okay, so Armageddon's already taken place. No. The Battle of Armageddon is the very last event of the tribulation. That is Armageddon. It's a forecast of Armageddon. Uh, in the same way that the sixth seal at the close of Revelation chapter 
uh, six is a is actually a description of the Battle of Armageddon. There's more than one description. We'll get more details in chapter 19 where it describes Jesus is coming out riding on a white horse and uh, with the sword coming out of his mouth and so forth. That's going to be actually the third uh, description of the Battle of Armageddon. So any questions? But we're, uh, we are going to, at our next meeting, we're going to go into these, the bowl judgments, which is the final series of seven judgments. And uh, then it, in chapters 18, uh, 17 and 18 uh, is a description of Babylon because it, Babylon was raised for the first time as an issue, as a topic there in uh, chapter 14. And that's a surprise. That's nowhere mentioned previously. And so then we're going to get details on that. Two solid chapters of details on Babylon. So uh, any questions before we conclude? All right. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for shepherding us through your word tonight. Lord, we, we want the facts. But we also want to be affected by the facts in the way that will bring praise and glory to you in our lives. And the things that we value, that we would value the things that you value, that we would make the choices that you would make. So that when we step into your presence, we too might bring that our works might accompany us in a way that will mean eternal kingdom reward we ask for this outcome in your name good shepherd jesus and all god's people said amen